Best known as the leader of the 70s soul group, the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band, and the composer of the resourcefully recycled R&B smash, Express Yourself, Charles Wright has evolved into a tireless watchdog of African-American history. Mr. Wright is author of Up From Where We've Come. His first in a three-part series of autobiographies, this one detailing his childhood in a family of sharecroppers. I had a chance to sit down with music legend Charles Wright and talk about his book, his family, their numerous trials and tribulations, and their harsh mind manipulations labeled sharecrop mentality, and how prevalent it is even today. We discuss some of the legends he's worked with, like Barry White, Bobby Womack, Glenn Campbell, Melvin Van Peebles. Here's what he had to say. ESPN LA 710. Welcome to The Experience here on ESPN LA 710. I'm Laferne Cusack. Today, I'm so excited to have in studio the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Charles Wright. He's founder of the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band, Grammy-nominated musician and author of Up From Where We've Come. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's such an honor to have you in. My pleasure. And I've read your book, Up From Where We've Come, and boy, (laughs) what an exciting life you've had. Tell us a little bit about your book. Well, my book takes place from my childhood in the Mississippi Delta, where my family were sharecroppers. And, And from all I know, sharecropping is a very close step from slavery. And uh, I experienced, my family experienced uh, a very traumatic lifehood at that time of my life when I was a child until we came to California when I was 12. And my book actually ended at Union Station in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. when I was 12. Yeah. And what I really enjoyed about, you know, opening up in the book, you talk about uh, having a memory that a child at such an early age shouldn't have. Can you talk about that? (laughs) Yeah, my book, it actually does start three months before I was born. And I mean, I, there was an incident that I remember and I, I remember it today as if it was yesterday. And um, I I used to try to explain to my parents um, this particular memory, but they didn't want to believe it because I'm sure it's abnormal for anybody to remember something three months before they were born. But actually, I do remember someone banging on our front door on a stormy afternoon telling my mother that my grandfather had just got killed while walking up the railroad tracks with a box of groceries on his head. I remember that distinctively. Mm -hmm. I remember what we had to eat when my mother cooked. Uh, I couldn't explain all that to him, but he still found it difficult to believe. Do you find that in your life you have experiences like that as you went on in your childhood and... Developing this relationship with your father and 
All of that? There's only one three months before you born. <laughs> <laughs> but at, in, in regards to being a t- intuitive, your mother, you know, she's, she stated that, you know, it's the woman's intuition, you know. Well, yeah. do you, so do you have that type of intuition? Yeah, a lot of times I do, and it's scary because a lot of times what I'm thinking comes true. And most of the time, it's not what I want it to be. <laughs> yeah, I've had experiences like that. And do you take? Do you have that when you're developing your music and bringing that sort of intuition into how you create and express yourself in your music? You know, the strange thing about it is my father's, his sharecropping boss, influenced him that music, African-based music, that's like the blues or rhythm and blues, was the devil's music. So my father wouldn't allow us to listen to this kind of music. And I never heard it until I came to California. I'd be walking home from school and the kids be singing all these songs. I wonder what they where they got them from. Finally, I realized they've been listening to the Honey Hancock radio show, which played all the greatest black music that was coming out at the time. And I got to listening to that. And before I knew it, I felt like I had to be a part of it. And and I never had any musical training. I just it was innate. Yes, I just became a part of it. And I guess because I didn't have the musical training, I was prone to have to create something on my own for if I'm going to write a song, I couldn't go by the book. I did it, and and it came out a little different than other people. And I think that's the only way I became a hit artist. Really? Yes. By intuitively knowing what you need to do. Feeling. Feeling. Yeah. I love that. And that's what it's all based around with me is a spiritual feeling. It's a spiritual feeling. I love that. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't trust their feelings nowadays. That's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I trust mine. Yeah. And it, it has propelled you forward. Well, that's the only honest thing you have is your feelings. Why not trust it? Yeah. And um, before off air, I was telling you about how a lot of athletes, you know, they may have that soundtrack in their head. They listen to their tunes while they're running or while they're in, you know, some sort of athletic activity and how much power and passion and grace it fills them with. Um, can you talk about what music means for you? Well, the same thing as those athletes feel. It's the rhythm. There's, you know, we're so blessed to have rhythm. You know, you can have all the other money, anything else in the world, but if you got rhythm, you got everything all locked in one. And uh my music is based on rhythm, basically. I base all of my music on the rhythm. If it don't have the rhythm, I throw it in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> Just get rid of it. Get rid really? of the clutter, you know. Yeah, you got it. A lot, but a lot of people want to keep on to everything just in case 
that may be the next hit or yeah well if it ain't got they used to say if it ain't got don't got that swing it don't mean a thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So what I loved about, you know, your your book is a lot of the father-son relationship. Can you talk about that and how your relationship with your dad evolved? Oh, like I started on, I think, my second chapter. My father was my hero when I was a little boy. And... uh <laughs> I loved him so much. And so everything he did around the the shack, he couldn't, I couldn't go to the cotton field with him. They wouldn't allow me to because I was too young. But everything he did around the shack, I was there with him. I was helping him. And so I had a sister uh, who was four years older than me. And she was, could pick cotton like an animated machine. <laughs> and uh, I had brothers older than me who hated it because they were out there working for free. And uh, so my father, I think, since I was so ambitious with him around the shack with whatever he had to do, <clears throat> I think he thought I was going to be my sister's counterpart. Mm-hmm. So... I used to beg him, Dad, please let me go with the rest of the family. But I was too young, and I had to babysit my brother, Frankie D., who was two years younger than me. So, finally, when I got to be six years old, he said, boy, I'm taking you out to the cotton patch. Oh, man. Oh, man, was that a happy day. <laughs> yeah. I, I was on the wagon, we were on the wagon headed home when he told me that. I jumped out the wagon singing, nah, 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 I'm going to pick some cotton. And my brothers, my two brothers, older brothers, was out front playing marbles. They looked at me like I was crazy. Because they knew the reality of it, right? (laughs) I skipped right on past them. Nah, nah. And I went in the house and told my mother. And I I thought she was going to give me a big hug. But Frankie D was behind me. He's crying because I'm going to leave him behind. And I told him, you're too young to pick cotton, so back off. <laughs> so my mother picked Frankie D up instead and hugged him and admonished me and apologized to my brother. <laughs> because uh, it was very rude of me to do that to him. Mm. So I... I reluctantly apologized. So the following week, they took me out to the cotton patch. Boy. (laughs) And about 20 minutes, I realized how how much I hated (laughs) (laughs) And my father became disappointed. And he actually, in the end, I mean, he threatened to whip me because I sit down on my sack and start crying. I want to go home. And so he threatened to whip me. And then about after I got eight years old, he demanded I get 100 pounds of cotton a day. Right. Which is an extraordinary amount. Well, I guess that's what the other kids had done. But uh, to this day, I have never done it. (laughs) (laughs) 
But he whipped me every day. I didn't get it. So I got a whipping about five days a week for not picking 100 pounds of cotton. So I, therefore, actually figure that I am from slavery. Mm. And people don't believe that someone my age could be from slavery. But if I got whipped five days a week for not getting 100 pounds of cotton and my father never got paid, he always, his boss always found a way at the end of the year to cheat him out every sin he thought he had coming. Yeah. Yeah. I I thought that was... Um, in the book, it was it's so frustrating for me <laughs> reading it because even though, you know, you're intelligent, your parents are very intelligent and they knew what was going on. If they had said, no, you know, I know how much I made and I know how much I owed you, they would be tormented. Uh, they they, they um, I don't know. Yeah, as a child, I used to think, why didn't they rebel against this system? And then again, I know what the Ku Klux Klan and and the people in that area at that time of history were like, and they were vicious. They wanted to make sure that we stayed under bondage uh, to make them richer. And that's just the way it was. And that's what my book is to express. Right. And from from that, um, you took it where the, your father's employer, <laughs> um, he would do a lot of things to your dad, and you felt like your dad was taking it out on you. I actually did, yeah. I felt like he was taking it out on my mind. What Mr. Miles was taking out on his behind. And Mr. Miles was a vicious old man who rode around in a Ford coupe with tobacco stains down the side of his <laughs> driver's side door because he wouldn't spit his tobacco far enough for it to go beyond his door. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't stand him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see how my parents put that with them for 23 years, but they did. My mother was constantly trying to tell my father he's getting taken, and he had to get out of the situation, but he was kind of in denial. And finally, my sister and my her boyfriend ran off and <coughs> came to L.A., and they invited my mother to come to L.A. with my father. I thought, my God, you're ridiculous. <laughs> but she worked it out, so she did eventually talk him into letting her come to visit. And once she came to visit and came back, she was never happy again. Because mm. she broke out of that wall of her life to see what was more. She was always threatening my father. That she was going to take the female children and leave him if he didn't get out of that situation. Yeah. And uh, finally she did. And left my father and most of my brothers, three of them was in the army. So the 
the three younger ones, myself and two younger were left there. And I was afraid we'd never get out. But uh, my father eventually did work it out, sold everything he had. My mother sent him every dime she hadn't spent. And we came to California by train. Can you talk about, you know, being so young and experiencing, you know, life as a slave, like you said, like being, you know, on a sharecropper in this experience, how much of that transformed into your art? I suppose a lot of it. They say I'm the funkiest man in Rome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) So I suppose a lot of it did. When we did move away from Mr. Miles' plantation, we moved to another plantation. Mm-hmm. which was two miles above Clarksdale. And we moved in the middle of the winter. We had no idea what we were getting into. Uh, this guy's plantation was right next to the city dump for Clarksdale, Mississippi. And whoo, <laughs> talk about an experience there. That dump was terrible. But worse was this man's son had a pig pen, which was about 100 yards from our house, our shack. And he, his parents owned the biggest independent market in Clarksdale, mm-hmm. and they owned the fish store. And he would throw cornflakes, rotten candy, all kinds of stuff in there to those hogs. And... He threw in fish heads by the tub full in a rotten fish head. Oh, <laughs> this is nasty. Rotten fish head is the most stinkingest thing I yeah. ever. And for three years, I had to endure that. Wow. But with that situation, can you describe what happened after that three years? We moved into Clarksdale. And, uh, that was great relief for me. And from there, that's when my mother, um, one day she came home angry because the police, there were two policemen who followed her home from work. She was walking. They was talking about all of her under clothes and everything. So she came in the house packing a suitcase. <laughs> Told my father she was leaving. And uh, she left. Mm. And we followed about three months later. Yeah. So can you talk about your your mother and the significance she had on propelling your family forward out of the situation they were in? That you were in? Well, you know, a lot of people say, oh, my mom was the, was the backbone of our family. Well, my mom, she, was, uh, she wasn't necessarily. I, I still, my father was the backbone. Mm-hmm. I can't take that away from him. But my mother was, uh, let's say, some of the muscle. Because... <laughs> 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 
she was always trying to get my father out of that situation. And uh, she finally did. And uh, and I'm thankful that she did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us about the day you arrived here in Los Angeles? It was raining cats and dogs. <laughs> they said I, <clears throat> I had heard it never rained in Southern California. <laughs> That's a lie. Yeah, it was raining cats. And it was in February, and it rained for three or four days just pouring down. And uh, actually, uh, when it stopped raining, Frankie D. and I started school. And for the first time, we were in a school that was totally integrated, mm-hmm. and it was... Uh, a fantastic feeling to be out of the situation we come from. And I remember when we, on the plane, we, on the train, excuse me, when we left the, uh, in Mississippi, we all had to get on the last car. All black people had to sit on the la- in the last car. Mm-hmm. So then we got to Memphis, Tennessee, and it was against the law for, to be segregated like that. So we got on this train in Memphis, and my father, he he was walking back to the back car, and he got there, and there were more white folks in it than there were black folks. So he didn't know what to do. He went back to the next car and the next car. And uh, he's go- so he's going back and forth like an out-of-control robot. Finally, he ran to a porter and asked the porter, what are the color folks supposed to sit on this contraption? And uh, he's dragging us along with him. So uh-huh. the porter said, said, anywhere you want on this train. Wow. Still- and he still didn't know what to do. He went back to the try to go back to the back car. Back and forth. Finally he stopped in the second car. And he said, Y'all take them seats right there. So we sit down and then he with dart in his eyes like he was stole something. Yeah. Sit in the seat right behind us. And that's how we came to California. Yeah. Just that that opening of your mind of it's no longer what it has been. And I can imagine the fear he might have had sitting in the second car. What about you? What were you feeling? Well, you know, I saw there were some people on there giggling at my father. Oh. And like I said, I probably would have done the same thing if I wasn't so closely related. <laughs> but I, let me read this little part in the book, if you don't mind. Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't help but notice how some people were giggling, snickering at my dad, which I may have done had I been, not been so closely related. But as far as I was concerned, those who did instead should have felt honored. For whether they knew it or not, they were witnessing 50 years of hardcore programming 
at the precise moment it began to unravel. And what I wondered were the chances that they ever observed such a phenomenon again. And most importantly, did they know they were witnessing a genuine slice of American history in the making, which in their wildest dreams, they'd never be able to comprehend mm-hmm. the full extent of its inert yeah. ingredients. That's nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. tr- true history. Yes. Tell us why this book is so important to you for the the history of like our young folks today. Unfortunately, I I don't believe the young people with the state of mind they're in today are going to pick this book up and read it. I hope they do. It's important that they do because if you don't know where you come from, you certainly have no not the slightest idea of where you're going. And this is something we all should teach our children. This is the true American history from the the focus of a person who really lived it Mm -hmm. and still alive. Yes. Um, Up from where we come. (laughs) Absolutely. I could put a question mark behind that. (laughs) That's why they need to read it. Yes, absolutely. And you went to Manual Arts High School. Maybe you could work something out with all the, um, with the administration there to have it on their um, list of books to read for all the students. Well, uh, maybe. You know, I did concert at Manual Arts High School a few years back. There's rarely a black student there anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I would put it. Westchester, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it needs to be read by all. should be in all the libraries. That's yeah. Why. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not the one to say that. <laughs> but I know it's to be the truth. So, yeah. but you didn't know. If I say it, it shall happen. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, ha- having your book out, can you talk about the maybe the the feeling of getting, getting things out? out? Yes, I don't know if it will yeah. ever be out of your system. I mean, but just getting it out there and written down. Yeah, it, it was. You know, it's been. I started writing this book forty years ago. So it's really, and, I, and it wasn't a struggle to write. I was just writing a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here. And it mounted up that I had more book than I could use in one book. I cannot put my, cram my life into one volume. Yes. So I'm writing another book right now. Yes. To follow this one that has to do more with, excuse me, my show business uh, life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a weight off of my shoulder getting this book out and finally getting it put in in print. Mm-hmm. And it still ain't over. I got a lot to do. Oh, it ain't over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it lot. ain't over. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciate a show like this, and 
a host like yourself. Um, and, and I'm sorry I get so emotional about this situation. Yeah, not at all. But, but uh, for somehow, uh, for some reason, you're, the way you interviewed me brought out my emotions. Oh. But I appreciate it. No, and I, I appreciate you. I truly do. And again, like reading that, it it brought out so much in me of what's going on in our society right now and yep. how people are treating one another, yes. um, especially on a, a legislation side and how people are responding to one another. And it, it is so hateful and so <laughs> mean, I want to say, but it's like, aren't, aren't we human beings? We can't. It is, it is backwards. That's what I look at it. It is backwards. I mean, I look at the legislation, like I say, I look at uh, Trump uh, and his organization, and actually everything I see, everybody's white. Where are the black people in this situation today? How did we get dumped out of that, you know? And they're making people like Maxine Waters out of being a monster and great one of the greatest people I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they try to make her look like she's mean. I wrote a poem. I can't recite it <laughs> <laughs> right now, but I wrote a poem that I'm going to put out on the social media very soon. Called. But it was black, Mom. Y'all check it out. Yes, we will. Just, I I just pray that, you know, we're, we'll all, yeah, I, I was telling you I have a four-year-old son, and I want him to be raised in a, um era of we all listen to each other, and we all grow, and we all hear everyone's experience and communicate. We don't have to agree with one another, but we can listen and have respect uh, for oneself and um, we can express ourselves <laughs> as, as well in a way that is positive for us as human beings and for our society. Um, well, this is 2017. <clears throat> have we gone already? Rodney King said that <laughs> in 1992. Mm-hmm. Same thing you said, basically. Can't we all just get along? Yeah. But, uh, you know, you got Russ Limbaugh. You know, they shouldn't have people like that on the radio if they want to have a great country. I understand freedom of speech and all, and thank God I can sit here on ESPN and express myself but it's not right for people to create havoc mm-hmm. like that. And uh, there are a few radio uh, personalities that are driving us insane. Mm-hmm. And you don't think we're going insane? Look at the news. Yeah, there's more and more of it. Um, and w- with that, Mr. Wright, I know that you know, music is a way that people come out of that psychosis, I, I feel. Um, one of your legendary songs, Express Yourself, um, is 
it's a, a legendary song. Can you talk about the composing of it and and how it came about? Everybody asked. <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm just like everyone else. Oh. No, you're not really. But I'm, <laughs> I'm really tired of telling the same story. <laughs> All right, let's move on. <laughs> now, I'll tell you if you really want to know your audience. Probably want to know. But actually, the band, we had a huge record called Do Your Thing before that. And uh, we were performing that song at Texas A&M one night. <laughs> and it, it comes to an erupt end. And when it ended, all the children kept stomping and clapping and stomping. And uh, so, I don't know, only God made me say, I said, express yourself. They went crazy. <laughs> so I said it a couple other times. And I realized what I had there. So I went to the hotel that night, and I sat down and started writing it. I got off a plane about 12 o'clock the next day, and I had finished it. Wow. I took it to the, took three musicians, uh, two musicians and myself, to the studio and made the track. And I brought it back to let the rest of my band hear my horn player so they could play on it. And they didn't even want to play on it. said it wasn't nothing. And then you said, bye-bye. No, I told them, I said, I, I threatened them. I used to play in the studio, so I threatened them I'd get some of my old studio buddies playing, so they grumbled, but then they played it. And then I took it to the record company, the president, he didn't like it. I took it to a disc jockey. I was playing in his club in Detroit. Took the first copy to him, and he told me he thought I made a mistake. <laughs> Nobody liked to express yourself. Really, but did you? But you had a you had a feeling. You had. I knew what it had because <laughs> I had that spiritual feeling when we were doing it in the mm-hmm. studio. Yeah. So, you know, a, a lot of artists talk about um, when they have something; it's just innate, or their hair raises up on the back of their neck when they know that they have something. Yeah. Is. Can you express how you feel when you know you have the hit? Express yourself. Well, I feel like that about every song I write. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly. (laughs) They just don't get exposed, you know. I I feel like that about every song I write. But then when I'm recording it, Mm -hmm. that's uh, when I really know when I feel that I got that feeling, you know. Like when we were playing Express Yourself, I feel like I was about to raise up out of my chair. That's how intense it was. So, Yeah, and I try to get that feeling with everything I do. Right, right. Uh, now, the music today, though, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's destroying the neighborhood. Why is that? Uh, the kids don't know what they're doing. They're talking all this wrong talk. They call themselves the N-word, which is the worst thing anybody could do. They don't seem to understand that they're burying themselves and the whole race. That's the same thing they did to the Jews in Germany. They did all kinds of stuff to make them look like they were not worthy. And after a while, everybody said, let's kill them. We got to stop this. We, 
I, I wrote songs trying to save society mm-hmm. and bring love to people, like Love Land. I tried to bring people to a loving place. And uh, a lot of my contemporaries did, the ones that had the nerve to try to do that. <sighs> Barry White wrote love songs. You mm-hmm. know, it was all about love. And here are these kids today, they're writing destructive songs, calling their women bees and, and calling themselves ends, and they're taking us nowhere. Mm-hmm. I plead to those kids to please give us some thought. Go back and listen to Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Barry White, and Charles Wright, and see what you should be doing instead of what you are doing presently. We need love, and that's what black people have in their hearts, and the rhythm is what we brought to this country. Let's take it to another level, not the downward level. Let's take it up. Mm-hmm. It's time to go up, y'all, Yes, up from where we come. Up from where we come. Mr. Wright, uh, words are very, very powerful, and uh, I, with your music and all that you've done, I, we all can feel it and see it um you've worked with other legends like you know barry white bobby womack um talk about some of the other legends that you worked with and how it was working with them well i don't know exactly what you mean by work with i've been on shows with practically every legend in the world i mean except when you come to the rappers from uh Everybody, mm-hmm. Temptations, Frank Sinatra, you name it. Uh, I've been on show with all of them. And, and I've recorded Love You. <laughs> and I've recorded with, uh, uh, matter of fact, Bobby Womack, Barry White. And I made one record that never came out yet. <clears throat> Uh, Bill Cosby, uh, Leon Haywood, uh, Betty Swan. You heard songs like Make Me Yours, uh, Got to Be Mellow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 B.J. Thomas, I mean, his name uh, uh, uh Glenn Campbell. Uh, I played with a lot. I used to be a guitarist in the studio. I played with everybody. <laughs> There wasn't too many people I didn't play with. Is there a particular type of musician you like to play with? And if so, why? Every musician in my band right now. Mm. I just love playing with them. I have some of the greatest musicians ever to uh, be, uh, they weren't born in there, but ever to be on board in L.A., I have the greatest musician. I got Lan Richards on drums. <laughs> I got Dale Atkins on bass. I got Tony Coleman on piano. I got Robert Bullitt on guitar. I got Michael Hunter on trumpet. I got uh, Louis Taylor on saxophone. I got Al Sharp on the, on the uh, trombone. And did I miss anybody? 
and they're the greatest musicians to play with. And we all enjoy each other, and we love each other, and God bless them all. A lot of uh, bands can't talk about that. A lot of people have yeah. riffs within their own community on stage. Can you talk about what makes it so successful? Love. You know, uh, my original band, we had that until we became too popular. Then everybody started getting chesty and wearing dark glasses. <laughs> Thinking they're better than everybody else. And before you know it, they self-destructed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think I would know how to handle that if ever that happens again. But that's difficult. You know, when you take guys from being just nightclub musicians to stardom, it's really a trip. Yeah. Do you, can you talk about the foundation you have to have? while rising to that stardom? Uh, again, love and confidence in, in yourself before you get out there. And then when you get out there, screw ego. That's the last thing you want to deal with. Ego is what brings you down. Yes, indeed. And we've seen it time and time again. Yeah. So with your current band now, um, for instance, um, I, I worked with a friend, Arnold McCullough, who um, he's played all around the world. And he sometimes have, has sets in the valley mm-hmm. and, or all over L.A. And sometimes he doesn't have the same drummer. And I can hear it. <laughs> I can, and I was surprised that I could because yeah. I'm like, what? You know, they uh, all get together yeah. and you can hear. It gels with yeah. the right people, yeah. Right. How do you work to form that gel? Togetherness. You work, yeah. It don't just come. Actually, I have my musical arrangements and everybody play them, uh, either love them. If they don't love them, we don't need them in our band because we have a combination. That's what it is, that right combination. Uh-huh. By the way, can I mention that we're going to be playing at the Rose on the uh, 3rd of August um, in Pasadena. Uh, the Emotions, the great Barbara Morrison, mm-hmm. and Charles Wright and the Watts Hearn Street Rhythm Band. We're going to all be at the Rose in Pasadena on August the 3rd. You, I never did ask you, did you mind? But anyway. Oh, no, not at all. I'm glad. Yeah. So everybody go out there. We can um, log on for more information uh, to your website, expressyourself.net, um, for more information, expressyourself.net. That's it. Um, and we could get more information on that. Mr. Wright, tell us uh, if you can write the next song that is able to heal, uh, able to heal. How would you go about that? Frankly, I've written it, but it'll never be heard. Why is that? Because they're not playing my music on the radio anymore. But do you find that being more independent? Um, I'm, I'm speaking of my new music. I okay. mean, you, they play my old music. Mm-hmm. 
but nobody's playing my new music. Right now, it's mostly rap and all that stuff, you know. So if somebody willing to play it, I have it already. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But do you find a more uh, open way that you can work uh, in the business that is more... um, um, is it freer to work now than it was before that you're able to get your music? I really don't think so. They claim the internet is the answer, and I really don't know if that's true because I've been trying that. Maybe I haven't taken the right approach yet. Uh, I'm going to keep trying, but I don't see... There's nothing like having someone, um, a, a company behind you to push your music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, I can't. I can't figure a way to beat that yet. Yeah. Uh, no, they claim well independent artists, but I think all the most of the organizations that's on the internet that's supposed to be where in, independent artists can go to exploit themselves, I believe the, the the same big companies been out there all the time mm-hmm. running that. So they're making sure that you don't go out there and have all these hit records without their assistance or they don't get in. Right. Money. Well, I know that you have a great backing in uh, Gregory and uh, Sheila. Oh, I have a great and, crew. <laughs> yeah. I, have, I have a great crew, Gregory. And Sheila and Piz and Ron and Mark, I really have a great crew. Uh, and um, we're doing everything we can. Yes. I think we are. If you guys ain't doing everything you can, let's get on it. Yeah. No, they're they're excellent. <laughs> no, but we, we work every day to uh, try to enhance what I'm doing. Yeah. But, again, there's nothing like having a solid company yes. behind you. When you're out there, because it's not just local, mm-hmm. it's all over the world. And Sony has licensed your song, Express Yourself, for an upcoming film. Oh, the emojis, yes. Oh, t- I talk about yeah, that. But that's, it's been in, in quite a few films, you know. Mr. and Mrs. Smith has been in 30 of my films. Yeah. Are you excited about it being in emojis? <laughs> It's nothing new to me, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm thankful because mm-hmm. they pay me well, so mm-hmm. I'm very thankful. Um, uh, but it's in commercials all over the world. Yeah. So I mean, I just That's I'm excellent. thankful that God gave me the song. Yeah, uh, that He gave me the idea. And it, only God could have gave it to me because, like I said, those kids was stumping and screaming. And I don't know what made me say <laughs> But how do, how do you, you know, you feel like all these people were telling you, no, this isn't a hit. This isn't a hit. They don't discourage me because the record we had, the one I was telling we were doing Do Your Thing, uh, when the Express Yourself came up, that record, they did the same thing. My band didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Nobody. It was out eight months. Uh, before anybody even knew it was a hit record, and that sold a whole lot of records. Mm-hmm. And even the record company didn't know it. 
until some disc jockey called me from Philadelphia and wanted me to headline the show. <laughs> I said, oh, headline your show? Um, I said, who's on the show? And he called all my heroes off, Chuck uh, Jackson, uh, uh, Ruth Brown. I mean, he started, I said, man, you got to be kidding. And he told somebody, he don't know. Uh, he said, you're number three in Philadelphia. Wow. I said, no kidding. I said, well, let me call you right back. (laughs) 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 So I I called the record company and called this guy, Clyde Vakimo, at the record company. Clyde, uh, this guy wanted me to headline his show in Philadelphia. He said, the record, do your thing, it's huge. He said, man, that guy's pulling your leg. We stopped tracking that record three months ago. I said, wow. I said, but he sounds serious. Man, <laughs> he's pulling your leg. Forget it, Charles. Mm-mm-mm. I said, at least you could call and find out. Yes. He said, yeah, I'll call you back in 15 minutes. Five minutes later, I don't believe it. You're 92,000 in Philadelphia alone. Never heard of nothing like this with an R&B record. Amazing. I said, see, you got to know on your job. <laughs> yeah. And he told me, well, maybe it's just a Philadelphia record. I said, people are people all over the world, buddy. You just believe it. That's a smash there. Yes. So he gave a disc jockey in Chicago 10,000 pieces. And the disc jockey played on his radio show, bus wide open all over the country. Wow. Longest record in the charts in in 1976. Wow. 27 months in the charts amazing yeah that's great mr charles wright it's such a pleasure having you on my show and again if you can let us know about what's coming up in pasadena in august and how we can take part august the third the emotions charles wright and the watch 103rd street rhythm band and the great miss barbara morrison Awesome. At, at the Rose in Pasadena. Show started at 8.30. Mr. Wright, if you can give our listeners, maybe someone that is trying to get into music or produce music or even trying to get through something as hard as life, what would you say to them? I say be true to yourself and try to spread some love if you can. Thank you. So, can I tell them where to get my book? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. That's the quickest way to get it, or the best way to get it. Yeah, that's where I got mine. Up From Where We Come is the title. Up From Where We Come, author, Grammy-nominated musician, and also... Philosopher. <laughs> Philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> Leader of the 70s soul group, the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band, composer of Express Yourself. It's truly been a joy. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Laferne Cusack. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, again, log on to ESPNLA.com and uh, go to... (laughs) 
<laughs> go to the experience page or check me out on Twitter at Laferne Cusack. You can also check Charles out on his website, which is expressyourself.net, and on Facebook, Charles Wright Music. See you next week here on ESPN LA 710. All right. <laughs> ESPN LA 710.